This is the Public Radio Hour, and we're exploring Alabama's new normal amid our COVID-19 reality. Redstone Arsenal says its approach to mitigating the spread of coronavirus is to treat it like a fire. Let's not go to a point where it gets out of control and it consumes our ability to provide treatment and care for those who have been infected. The Green Street Market is trying to balance the risk of coronavirus infection against the benefits of shopping locally. It's a wonderful chance for us to be together. And I will say every time I see somebody with a mask on, it makes me happy because I know they're doing it because they love their neighbor. Live local music is trying to regain its footing as safety concerns hamper local performance venues. Music connects us in ways that no other language does. But there's something about being in the presence of a live musician. We'll also hear how the downtown library lets you check out without walking in. A look at Alabama's new normal coming up next. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill, with Katie Ganaway. We've been exploring Alabama's new normal during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and tonight on the show, we'll visit with Purple 19 founder Judy Allison about efforts to reignite Huntsville's local music scene and the safety challenges that presents. Redstone Arsenal is trying to restart its regular operations, and we'll hear how that's going from Garrison Commander Colonel Kelsey Smith. And our amazing public library system has gone curbside to help its patrons keep their minds engaged. But up first, Dory Nutt takes us along on a trip to Green Street Market at Nativity in downtown Huntsville. After months of quarantining at home, only to venture out to the grocery store, shoppers and vendors tell us what they like about the local market being open and how they feel about coming together again six feet apart. I'm Marilyn Evans. I'm the market manager of the Green Street Market in Huntsville, Alabama. It is very important, I think, that people learn how to get together and to have some social interactions and feel safe and be safe. I think people, when they support their local farmers and their local vendors, they're supporting their community. It, it is a known health benefit. It's a known community economic benefit. It just is a win-win-win for everybody. I am Jordan Freeman. I'm from Huntsville. Why do you think it's important to shop at Farmer's Market? You know, there's these big, these big stores. They have all the things you might ever need, but the local people... I feel like need the most help. They're doing it the, I think, the best way. They're not trying to just make a quick buck. They're they're putting quality, and it always. It tastes better. The eggs are good. That's why I'm here. Ron King, and I'm from Taft, Tennessee, and uh, well, we got a lot of vegetables sale, and you know, uh, we come down here with our eyes open and a big smile on our face. Did you have any concerns about coming out uh, with the COVID virus pandemic going on? Well, not really. Green Street, we know they're going to go to every extreme to do it the way it's supposed to be, and they have as far as wearing the mask and letting so many at a time. So I don't think we've got any problems. My name is Janae Smith, and I'm from Yum Yum's Gourmet Popcorn and Lemonade Stand. Did you have any concerns about coming out to the market in this environment? Not one bit at all. In an open environment such as a market, and it gives people the opportunity to practice social distancing, um, more so than in a confined space like a grocery store or Walmart. I'm so grateful that we still have opportunities to still try to make um, some money and thrive during these, these trying times. I'm Wanda Wesolowski. I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, and I've been coming to this market since I was a teenager, so about 10 years now. I think it's important to stay local and to support those uh, in your community and to enrich the economy that is around you, you know. Hey, I'm Barbara Bonner, and I live here in Huntsville, and I have been coming to the market ever since we moved here about eight years ago. Did you have any concerns about safety in coming here? The first time, yes, I was concerned about, you know, coming out uh, just with all the COVID-19 stuff going on. Uh, but once I got here, felt much better about everything because uh, the Green Street Market is really making every effort to make it as safe as possible. 
Well, on top of being outside and uh, getting to meet the people who actually grow the food, I just love supporting our local farmers and getting to talk to them about their products. My name is Paul Spell. I'm with Humble Heart Farms. We're from Limestone County, and we're selling goat cheese and Wright's Dairy Cheese right here at the Green Street Market. Did you have any concerns before the market opened up when you thought about coming here? Not really. To tell the truth, I was more anxious to meet people. <laughs> Being on the farm was all by myself. My name is Michael Goldsmith. I've been coming to the market for, this is my second season. And I know that you are the rector here at Church of the Nativity that sponsors the Green Street Market. Why do you think it's important for the church to sponsor this market every week? It is one of the truly um, unique things in the downtown area where people from all walks of life and all parts of our community can come together and be a family, be a, be a city family together. I think it's hugely important. Um, I think we um, are able to see our neighbors for who they are and instead of who we think they might be. And it's a wonderful chance for us to be together. And I will say every time I see somebody with a mask on, uh, it makes me happy. Uh, it makes me happy because I know they're doing it because they love their neighbor. And that's what we're called to do. The Green Street Market at Nativity is open on Eustace Avenue in downtown Huntsville every Thursday, May through October, from 4 to 8 p.m. You can find updates on all the fresh local goods you can find at Green Street on the Green Street Market at Nativity Facebook page. Find a link on the page for tonight's Public Radio Hour podcast at WLRH.org. We'll be right back after this break. The Cat Cafe Bandwagon is coming to Huntsville. Low Mill Arts and Entertainment Studio 1062 is transforming into a nonprofit cat lounge called Catty Shack. We focus on rescuing shelter cats and provide a resource for cat adoptions in Huntsville. Space in the cat lounge is limited, so reservations are recommended. Information's online at CaddyShackHuntsville.org. That's C-A-T-T-Y, CaddyShackHuntsville.org, and on social media at CaddyShackHSV. If you're looking for a unique way to celebrate your graduate in the age of social distancing, try a WLRH Day Sponsorship. Your personalized message of congratulations will be read by our hosts six times on the day of your choice. It's a way to bridge the distance and tell the entire Tennessee Valley just how proud you are. To schedule your day sponsorship, go to WLRH.org and click the blue donate button to get started. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host, Brett Tannehill, with Katie Ganaway. We're exploring Alabama's new normal as we adjust to our strange new COVID-19 reality. For the most part, this new reality has been devoid of the performing arts and, more specifically, live music. Social distancing guidelines and the fear of infection have all but shut down nightclubs and performance venues, making it tough for local musicians making it tough for local musicians to find a place to play. Concerts are still happening, but mostly outdoors, and people are still wary. I sat down with Judy Allison to learn more about it. Allison is a local musician who created a group called Purple 19, which helps connect musicians with work and also serves as a professional training resource through programs like its Music Biz Mondays. We started Music Biz Mondays in 2018 in the fall, to uh, gather people together to learn from each other because that's the best way to learn is from experience. And we thought sharing experiences with others would help us. If we elevate each other, we all elevate together. Um, And there's so much to learn about the publishing rights and PROs and the legal aspects of the music industry. Um, We have a lot of really amazing creative talent in Huntsville and a lot of people who have a lot of experience touring the world and we thought we could just bring them together and learn from each other. And that's one of those things that went away when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, right? The public meetings did, but we continued on uh, Zoom, and we've had a few meetings that way. 
more currently, you're working with a couple of local entertainment venues, I guess is a good way to put it, uh, Stove House and Campus 805, uh, to book live music. And it's some of the first live shows Huntsville has seen since the pandemic shut businesses down across the state. So let's start with uh, what happened uh, with you and Purple 19 last weekend at Campus 805. What happened uh, and how did it go? Well, Campus 805 reached out to me to help book their music for these live events that they wanted to reboot their campus. And I thought that was such a positive way for them to take care of the people that are there, all of the businesses that are located on campus. Um, So we have two weekends full of entertainment, three, three artists each night. And so far, the weather has been really great. Um, the artists are very careful uh, about sanitizing and separating, and, and um, the Canvas 8 to 5 staff has also been really great about uh, partitioning off space for the artists to be to feel safe and you know, slightly away from people more than normal. They've advertised quite a bit, and they're doing photos and videos and really trying to help the you know boost the economy a little bit surrounding the campus and, and the business there with their like the breweries and the food establishments. I've seen pictures from other cities as they've reopened, and some of those scenes have been a bit scary with the bars completely packed with people, nobody wearing a mask, kind of shoulder to shoulder, carrying on as if nothing else is really happening. What did it – you kind of described this already, but what did it look like at Campus 805? You mentioned they put down duct tape to mark off an area around the performers. What what did it look like? Mm Mm-hmm. It actually was very well organized. I think the the people that came sort of organized themselves, but all the venues had tape outlining, you know, uh, paths, walking paths where you should go, and then duct tape around the artists to separate them. Um, they also um, had them made sure to have all the artists outside. That was one of the main points. They didn't want to have any, you know large gatherings inside the building. They figured fresh air would be nice and clean and um, just a better environment. And this coming Saturday at Stove House, Purple 19 is hosting the She Writes Songwriters Showcase. And this is taking place uh, in a covered area at Stove House called The Shed, uh, cover on top, and they have some zip-up walls that they can either open or close. Uh, And it's not taking place on the courtyard stage, which I thought that it might be. So tell us what you expect to happen this coming week. The weather looks like it's going to cooperate. What do you expect to happen at the Stove House? Well, we're really excited about Stove House. They're such great people that, that run the place, and it's such a fantastic venue. There's it's there's a lot of outdoor space, which is really great. And the shed is a convertible space. It can be like a pavilion with the the fresh air and the the walls up, or you can you know zip the walls down and have more of an enclosed space. Um, and they have graciously you know welcomed us for two shows actually. Um, and uh, it is a ticketed event, so that's why we couldn't have it on the main courtyard stage because it would be hard oh, right, for us to right. to enclose and you know charge people to come in. But um, Stephen Jackson over there is really great uh, to work with, and he's been fantastic. And they're very concerned, very careful about um, sanitizing and separating. They're they're keeping all the sanitizer stocked. They are separating the tables. Uh, so we have a limited capacity for this show. We normally would go for about 200 tickets for this one is what I was aiming for. But uh, we've l- reduced the capacity for it to less than half per- half of that. So probably around 75, 80 people. So one of the things that I'm really wondering about and, uh, and I'm not going to say look forward to see what happens with it, but – Uh, Some of the other venues, some of the smaller clubs, obviously don't have that option of having an outdoor area like Campus 805 or Stove House. Um, So, uh, Judy, what do you expect to happen with these smaller clubs as they're sort of forced to cope with this new COVID-19 reality? A lot of them may not even be able to open with reduced capacity in order to pay their bills and things like that. What, What do you expect to see at some of these smaller clubs around Huntsville? Well, I hate to speak on their behalf, but I think it's going to be very hard, very difficult to manage 
the the quantity of people coming in and out because usually clubs are um you know if they're going for a live music act then they're going for maybe an hour hour and a half you know and so it's kind of transient you know where people want to be in and out some people might go and stay for 20 30 minutes and then leave um so it is a lot higher traffic area and the later the later it gets I don't know how they're going to be able to to control that, but I think they're probably going to hurt more than others. And uh, as a musician, maybe you can uh, speak to this as well. A lot of musicians are just looking for places to play. And considering that, you know, venues were somewhat in short supply to start with, and now those opportunities to play shows and, and, and earn a living are, are even shorter, uh, what's it like? What's it like to be a musician, count on that for your livelihood, and then have to cope and find something completely new? It's it's difficult. Um, our household is 100% live music um, funded. <laughs> so it's been a really difficult place to be in, and I'm grateful that unemployment has uh, a greater reach to include self-employed. Um, we have yet to see that come through, but some music- musicians have been able to connect with that. Um, then employment is pretty good. So if the musician really wants to get back into playing full time, they might. It just depends on how the venue decides to pay them. And I think at this time it's really tough. The venues are not making money. So there's that temptation to work for less than you deserve which might happen here and there. Um, Hopefully that won't last very long. I feel that that's a very important thing to me that people are paid what they deserve to be paid, but we're in an economy right now where it's very tough. So I think the people who want to work and who feel that they can get out there, they don't have any at-risk, high-risk people in their family that they want to protect right now, those are the people that are actually working trying to get out on, like, the busking events downtown or the Campus 805 or Stove House. And I know that safety concerns are really driving the decision-making on, on a lot of this, whether you're a musician, whether you're a venue, whether you're a fan. So, uh, Judy, what is your personal comfort zone when it comes to that? Because you're you're all those things. You're someone who books shows, uh, Purple 19 hosts educational events. You're a musician, but you're also a big music fan. So, how, how are you wrapping your head around that? I know I'm having trouble. Uh, wh- where are you with that? Oh, I I feel really bipolar about that. <laughs> I I am I'm a Gemini too, so I am right in the middle of having all the feelings. Like I want to hug everybody, and it's been so hard. It really is. It's been tough. Um, I've been out on campus just to support show my support um, last weekend and and grab a meal and enjoy the music. And it was really tough not to go around hugging people because that's just me. Um, So it is really tough. Um, But some people, and maybe maybe they have more self-control than I do, and they're just going to stay home. (laughs) I think some of the musicians are really concerned about that, and they don't want a chance until maybe mid-June to late June um, I think we might see a little bit more activity around then. And, and that's the final question I had for you is moving ahead. How do you see uh, the performing arts coming back in Huntsville for the summer and fall? I think this summer it it may look a little bit more normal. I, I, I don't think we'll see normal for a long time because we're ultra concerned and ultra aware but I think mid to late June, after we see the numbers come through and how this has affected us, this little resurgence, I think that will make people feel more comfortable about getting out. So what is the new normal for performing oh arts, for goodness. live music? I think the new normal is doing as many live shows that you can in your home, live and online. Uh, live feeds right now are really important but i think people are starting to get out a little bit more so they're not watched quite as frequently um but just a mix of doing that and and sharing your art and what you do with your art i think the new normal may become 
sharing more of your creative process and finding new ways like joining Patreon and having a subscription service to your uh, brand, you know, to your website, more blogs, more opportunities for people to get to know you in different ways. I think the the cover band um, that plays around town, those are the heaviest hit probably right now. The artists who are writing and and preparing songs from their heart and their, the originals, I think they're in high demand right now because we want to hear something new and fresh and original. But I think I think it will all circle back, you know, once once we see how things go. And I don't I don't want to put a time frame on that, but um, yeah, I think the new normal is sharing more of your art and your creative process, and definitely including the live feed shows. And why is it important for live music and the performing arts to survive and continue in a time like this? I really feel like it's essential. Uh, you know, music connects us in ways that no, no other language does. There, there, it is a you hear it all the time. Music is a universal language, but there's something about being in the presence of a live musician and that live music and the energy that is there between people and re, you know we're made of energy you can read the books about science and music in the brain and it's we need it to survive if if there were no broadcasts if there were no TVs if there were no clubs we would be out in the garden in the field singing we would be singing to our family singing to our friends we music would happen and if, I really believe that it's something is essential and organic that we we can't stop. And I want to try to encourage that as much as possible to get people to continue and not not succumb to the depression and the the heaviness of it all. I know a lot of people are having a hard time creating just because it's a heavy time. It's uncertain, but I think we'll also see people rise up that we never expected. Judy Allison is the creator of Purple Nineteen, also a musician, and a big music fan. So, uh, Judy, thanks for joining us on the Public Radio Thank Hour. you for having me. I Absolutely. appreciate it. As you may have heard, the next event hosted by Purple 19 is this Saturday from 7 to 10 at The Shed at Stove House in Huntsville. It's the She Writes Songwriter Showcase, featuring local musicians Lana White, Alley Cat, Tanita Rogers, Lillian Glanton, and Nashville songwriter Sarah Beth Terry. You can find more information about Purple 19 on its Facebook page, and you can also find links to the information you hear this hour at wlrh.org. Just look under the Programs tab for the Public Radio Hour. We'll be right back after this break. Have you been hearing a new voice on Morning Blend? Good morning. I'm Tom Fralick, and welcome to another Wednesday edition of Morning Blend. Join us Tuesday morning in the 10 o'clock hour as we introduce our newest on-air host and learn about the musical journey that's brought him to our studios. That's Tuesday at 10 on Morning Blend. The kingdom of WLRH Huntsville Public Radio once again lies in peril. Having emerged from a cloudy haze lost in a forest, our hero's path is now clear. The annual membership goal takes shape once again as the dragon of apathy and lies firmly atop a seemingly impenetrable mountain. Onward they climb, battling back the wind and the cold. Ever forward they march to reach the dragon's lair perched high atop the mountain. Support our battle-hardened adventurers who endeavor valiantly to keep our kingdom inspired with programs of renown and profundity. Be a shining beacon of strength. Just spare a few coins of any amount or infuse our adventurers with the sustaining lifeblood of monthly contributions. Join the quest, follow online and on social media, and give today at WLRH.org. Next time on City Arts and Lectures, we consider the manipulative power of technology. Tristan Harris will talk to Jacob Ward about the profound and negative effects of tech companies' unmitigated race for our attention. From shortened attention spans to increased mental health issues. Is the online world lawless 
Or is structural change possible? Catch City Arts and Lectures here Thursday nights at 8 on 89.3 HD1 WLRH. The Community Foundation of Greater Huntsville is now accepting grant applications for its Digital Inclusion Fund supported by Google Fiber. Nonprofit agencies are invited to submit project proposals that help K-12 students in Huntsville have access to digital devices and mobile internet that will improve their distance learning opportunities. $75,000 is available and you can apply online. The deadline is May 29th. Info at communityfoundationhsv.org slash grants. Last week, we talked with Shalise Worthy, an archivist at the downtown Huntsville Library who's preserving our pandemic experiences. This week, we head to the Madison Library and talk with circulation manager Alex Kim Yon to hear how life has changed as the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library goes curbside. You know, it's a lot of the same duties in a new format. Um, Most of what I do is just kind of manage the day-to-day operations. So for the first week, what we did was define what those operations were, completely rebuild our service model, and then train ourselves and then everybody else on that model. Um, yeah, in about the span of a week. And obviously, there was a lot of tweaking before going into the second week before we figured it out. Uh, but otherwise, it's a lot of the same, making sure people are getting their lunches and are supported. They have what they need, um, that they're getting their breaks. They're staying hydrated, a lot of that. Just some, Mama heading stuff, plus figuring out scheduling, which is always a hoot and a half when from week to week we don't even know what our schedules are supposed to look like. This is the new normal. We are all getting used to it. For you personally here at the library, how have you felt during that transition? Like going from having tons of people walking in every day to nothing but your coworkers? Like it was a rough transition. It was rougher than I expected it to be. I think, Um, especially because so much of what I do and what I enjoy doing is working with people. But I am naturally like when I go home, I just want alone time. And I thought, oh, well, quarantine will be fine and going back to work will be fine because I'm naturally introverted. And it turns out, no, I really miss working with the public. So maybe an ambivert. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what I'm learning about myself is that I do miss some of that just chatting with folks. I especially miss kids. I had a hard time accepting the initial decision to not allow printing services or internet access inside the building. Um, Obviously, we couldn't have the public in the building, but even the fact that we have a mobile print that we couldn't quite figure out the logistics of very quickly to figure out how to do with curbside um, was tough because that's an essential service for a lot of folks. There are lots of essential services and even just forms of entertainment. Can you give examples of different services that are not right now being offered that patrons may, you know, hope to have back one day? Yeah, the Makerspace is a big one. Um, We did utilize the Makerspace. Nora Barr is our Makerspace specialist, and she did end up utilizing utilizing the space while we were closed to make um, PPE. Um, She printed just boatloads of headbands for hospital folks. But we did used to have classes in there that now we obviously we can't do. Um, the story times we managed to move online. So at least right. the this, this system is providing story times and we have the craft bags now. But again, not getting to have folks come in and sing and dance together and socialize with each other, right. especially babies and young kids is is pretty tough. You guys used to or I say used to like it was so far in the past, but it feels there, like it. <laughs> yeah, the, there was summer reading and, you know, kids would come in and, you know, enjoy speakers who would come in and talk to them or they would meet authors and things like that. And that's just not going to be the case. So I wonder what is the new summer reading going to look like this year? We're still in the process of figuring that out. I do know that we're going to have some enrichment in the form of the crafts. Um, we're going to keep the online story times. Um, we're going to try and figure out some kind of reading log situation like we've had in the past to help incentivize uh, young folks to keep reading over the summer, which was already probably difficult for a lot of folks. But now that they're not, haven't physically been in school for months, I'm sure it's going to be even harder to incentivize that. So we're trying to find ways to keep keep that spirit up. Um, but a lot of it's going to look digital. 
there are going to be a whole lot of transitions into the digital world. But like you mentioned before, you are offering a, a service where you are putting materials for craft making into a bag for families and children. And can you talk about what's in those bags and how you choose the theme? So we, we really put that in the purview of our youth services librarians, um, since they're the ones who ordinarily run that stuff anyway. Of course. Um, so just based on the supplies that we had, they put together quick instructions, easy to follow instructions for littles and their grown-ups. One of my favorites that I've seen go out is those scratch boards, those rainbow scratch boards um, that they cut into bracelet strips. And so, (laughs) which was, I'm like, I want one of these. I want a little scratch board bracelet. Um, And just basically, yeah, making the best of whatever resources we can find um, for these crafts before the summer reading crafts kickoff, which will be um, uniform across the system. And another resource that you're turning to for teens for this summer for their required reading is the audiobook service Sync. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah. So as far as, I mean, all of our audiobook and ebook services, we hope, can can come in handy for that. Um, so on top of Sync, we have Overdrive. We have Libby, which we've always had. And we currently have access to Hoopla, um, which has which was new. We just kicked that off when the pandemic started. And um, we're really excited about that because there's so many audiobook, audiobooks on Hoopla. All of those resources are accessible to anyone with a library card. Um, Hopefully they can help folks keep up, again, with their required reading, especially if they can't get print copies. Obviously, right now, patrons are using the curbside service. What has the feedback sort of been like? Were they a little hesitant to start that service at first, or were they very welcoming? Or The patron response has been overwhelmingly positive um i mean every other mom that gets out of their car or dad that gets out of their car is like we're so excited the kids have been so bored they're so tired of reading the same books over and over and over again so i mean yeah but as far as from patrons it's definitely been overwhelmingly positive and i think from the staff as well i think we're pretty happy about it which is funny because there was a conversation about starting this much earlier than we did um and we were very hesitant at first Mm -hmm. um just from a safety standpoint but Um, especially now I think we've realized that we've got some of the most stringent safety measures in place that I've seen anywhere in the city, honestly. And, you know, once, now that we've got that pretty much knocked out, whole team's really rocking it out. And um, I think people have recognized that we're doing the utmost to keep people safe. Sure, sure. What, What sort of challenges have you guys run into or kinks that you've come into that you had to flatten out? It started with sheer volume. People were really stoked to come back to the library. Uh, and so just the first few days, I mean, we we sent out more items, as many items in one day via curbside as we had our, during our busiest days in the summer. And, um, and that's without people like physically coming in and picking up anything. So it was a wild time. We offer a transit service where folks can put a a hold on a book anywhere in the system and we'll send it to the branch that they want to pick it up from. And that got backlogged obviously uh, while we were closed. So then catching up with all of that and trying to get all those people that holds that they've been waiting a month and a half for was um, a lot. That was quite a bottleneck to get through. So it's a lot of catch up. It was a lot of catch up that first week for sure. So I know right now things are different. Things are more digital and that's going to be for like the foreseeable future. But when it is safe to reopen the library to the public, what, for you, what will the new normal be, do you think? Um, I anticipate that we, we will continue to enforce social distancing for as long as there's any question at all that, that COVID is still an issue. Physically being in the library, it's much emptier now than it was just a furniture. We've moved a bunch of the furniture around to just so we can set them up at um, CDC-accepted guideline intervals and all that good stuff. With the lack of programming, obviously, we, we won't see too many people because we will try to adhere to CDC guidelines there as far as not enforcing, like, gathering people up into small rooms. One of the common, like, quote, complaints we used to get before was that the library was very loud. Why is, why is, why is there so much activity in here? And I would explain to people, well, in the 21st century, libraries have become more like community centers, more like the community living room. Right. So we got the tutors, we got, you know, D&D going on in the young adult room, we got kids playing in the kids room, and they're just not the stoic, silent academic institutes that, the institutions that they used to be. And I expect that we will end up returning to the more silent, stoic institution that libraries used to be just because we can't 
gather a bunch of kids. We can't give them the toys. We can't have gatherings of folks playing D and D, and and hopefully it won't last long. But it's just the way it's going to have to be for a while. In addition to checking out books online, families can also reserve a craft bag and a grab bag, where librarians curate a bag of pre-selected titles for you, based on your genre preference. The library is also offering virtual story times on YouTube and book club meetings on GoToMeeting. Check out all of the library's digital offerings, plus other links mentioned in this episode at WLRH.org. Just look for the Public Radio Hour under the Programs tab. This is the Public Radio Hour on member-supported 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Brett Tannehill with Katie Ganaway. When the pandemic reached North Alabama, the state's largest employer, Redstone Arsenal, kept its promise to safeguard the installation, including its workforce and its residents. Katie Ganaway talks with Garrison Commander Colonel Kelsey Smith about how the installation is adapting to Alabama's new normal. You know, it's it's difficult to describe the new normal. I would say this is that um, what what Redstone Arsenal is experiencing is is really very similar to to what um, Huntsville and the surrounding communities experiencing. We, we're just experiencing it um, time delayed, for lack of a better term. Experience their reductions in uh, from the stay at home order down to the safer at home guidance. All of those precautions were put in place, you know, to reduce the number of individuals that might be exposed to the virus. And now we're gr- they are gradually bringing those employees back. Redstone Arsenal has done very much the same thing. We increased the precautions and reduced the workforce that we had physically on the arsenal. We, we had people here that were mission essential, as we designated. And then we, we moved to send a large portion of our population uh, back to their homes to telework and to others who were more vulnerable, we put them on administrative leave. Now, as we begin to ease those precautions and begin to introduce the population um, back to physically working on the arsenal, we're doing it much like our surrounding community and we're doing it in a phased conditions-based approach that allows us to bring in a larger population, continue to observe how they are interacting and how the virus may be affecting or spreading. Um, maintain those precautions for a time being as, as things stabilize. And then when they do, we'll bring back another portion of the, of the workforce. So how much of the workforce at the Arsenal was able to return two days ago, Tuesday, May 26th? My job is to prepare for the demand. And so what we with the senior commander and all of the other senior leaders did is we said, we believe we can bring back up to 50% of the previous population of that 40,000. And I will tell you that today we see um, our traffic counts and so forth suggest that the tenant organizations probably have brought back about a total of 40% of their populations at this point. So what factors led the leadership at the Arsenal to come to that decision to agree on May 26th as a good date to open? We looked at our personal protective equipment and what we had on hand. We ensured our stocks were, were sufficient to bring a workforce in. We put in place social distancing or physical distancing um, procedures within our buildings, you know, such as one-way, uh, one-way hallways. When we knew that uh, we had those procedures in place, then we were able to look out at the virus and the transmission rate of the virus. And what we experienced was a 14-day decrease in the number of new cases uh, in the surrounding community. And that, that allowed us to look at those conditions and whether or not we had precautions in place and recognize that we could accept to bring back a larger portion of the population. What can you tell us that's new to those who are commuting to work, uh, coming to the arsenal? We started uh, ramping this Uh, up our precautions, and one of the precautions was to reduce some of the impacts at the gate, such as handing over an ID card and and having both the guard touch the ID card and the the person uh, that was gaining entrance. And so we've gone to just a visual inspection. Additionally, as uh, as we instituted more precautions, we, we reduced the number of lanes commensurate with the number of people we were sending home, and then we uh, reduced some of the what we call ACPs or the uh, 
uh, the control points, the access points, the gates, and we've reduced the number of lanes available at those gates uh, as people as our population dwindled. And today, knowing that we have about 50% that we're going to be prepared to welcome back, uh, we've opened up all those lanes. And at the same time as opening those those four lanes or all of those lanes at each uh, gate, uh, we're still maintaining a no a visual inspection of the personnel in the car and their ID card. Across the U.S., there have been so many layoffs and people filing for unemployment. Lieutenant General Edward Daly did say in late March that 45,000 personnel were teleworking, and uh, while 35% were executing critical uh, critical missions at the post at that time. So on the arsenal, have there been any furloughs or layoffs that had to happen during this pandemic? Well, the federal employees that work here on the arsenal, whether it be for Marshall, for the FBI or DOJ and the Army, if they were sent home to telework, they really continue to get paid. Likewise, those individuals that were identified as more vulnerable to COVID, should they catch it, those folks were sent home on administrative leave. You would see, you know, here at the arsenal, probably the most volatile group of employees are really those contractors. And I can tell you that the contractors that work for the garrison uh, didn't experience layoffs because we had to keep mowing our lawn and we had to keep doing our, our maintenance on our buildings. If you were a federal employee, there were mechanisms put in place for you to continue working and likewise continue to get paid. Now, I want some insight from your unique perspective as garrison commander. Mm-hmm. There are up to 353 families living on the installation. So how well would you say that they are practicing those CDC and um, Department of Public Health guidelines, like keeping a six-foot distance from one another, wearing face coverings? I do get out around the, the installation. I would tell you that I think those 353 families are performing very much like the families that live off of the installation and all of those folks that, that come to work here. We routinely stress that the best way for us to combat COVID-19 or for us to beat the virus is for each of us to take personal accountability for those very precautions you discussed. Sanitize your hands routinely. You know, wash your hands with soap and water for 20 seconds. Maintain your six foot of separation. And if you can't, uh, put on that cloth face covering. If you're sick, most importantly, if you're sick, stay at home and let's not introduce the virus into our workplace or into those areas where we come in close contact with one another. And then the other thing we've done on the arsenal, much like you've done elsewhere, is, you know, we've limited the number of people that can be on a base or on a basketball court or uh, in a gym or otherwise, very similarly to what's gone on out there. And truthfully, you know, here on the arsenal, just like uh, everywhere off post where I live, um, I'm watching very similar human behaviors occur. You know, if somebody's not wearing a mask, then I make sure that I stay, you know, six to 10 feet away from them. And Mm -hmm. I I see those very same um, practices being done here. You know, every day I do go and look at the state health department's um, COVID-19 data and surveillance dashboard. And that sort of keeps up with the statistics of how many people um, in a county and statewide have contracted the virus, have died from the virus. Are those numbers from folks who live at the installation or commute to the installation, are those numbers included in that data for Madison County? Yes. Most of the 40,000 folks that work here see a primary care provider that is off post. And so that primary care provider, when they get a positive test, reports to the Alabama Department of Public Health directly. If you are seen at Fox Army Health Center, you're a green suit or a DOD, Department of the Army employee that gets your benefits from Fox, uh, Fox also follows the same guidelines and reports direct to the Department of Public Health. You know, if you live in Limestone County, regardless of whether you were tested on Redstone Arsenal, your number is included in a Limestone County number. Now, back in mid-March, there was a case of coronavirus uh, in the pharmacy of the Fox Army Health Center. And I should mention the person who contracted the the coronavirus uh, was a Department of the Army civilian who worked in the pharmacy, and they have since quarantined. I assume they have recovered. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I can tell you. In fact, uh, that was a 
you know, really good announcement this morning is of all of the individuals that work on the arsenal, all of those that had contracted the virus um, have all since recovered with the exception of one. And we expect a full recovery from that individual by the end of the week. Before we were talking about how the various tenant organizations have sort of their own policies on reopening. And Mm -hmm. I wonder for you, what is the biggest challenge in balancing safety and operations and making sure everybody is sort of um, operating in a cohesive way? Well, I will tell you, I am blessed. Is uh, our partners in that the Department of Justice, our our partners over at NASA, uh, Marshall Space Flight Center, and then uh, my fellow Department of the Army commanders as well as DOD commanders. We meet every Wednesday, and realistically, I kind of use the I use the example is as the mall, if you think about Redstone Arsenal and the garrison commander is managing the mall, I kind of describe to them how we, the, the operating hours, you know, et cetera, for how we're going to keep the water running and keep all of our services working. Um, and then they communicate to me in turn what their demands for their organizations are and how many folks they're going to bring to work. And likewise, they, they communicate, you know, if they need a sterilization cleaning, or if they they need an enhanced touch cleaning, if they need certain facilities opened or closed, they give me a heads up on the demand for my for our child development centers. So I'm really blessed in the fact that I work with them every single Wednesday. Um, I work with them, and then I meet with their senior leaders um, either weekly or biweekly with General Daly, um, and we we put out the guidelines for the installation, and then they have all been fantastic about communicating their requirements as well as understanding that I can't keep everything open, you know, when we only have a, a small demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've all worked tremendously together, and I very much appreciate them. I'll tell you, we are highly affected at Redstone by what Madison City is doing to caretake for our workforce as they move home. Same thing for Huntsville City and Madison County and, and really the surrounding communities or surrounding counties. And I'm, I'm blessed to work with, uh, with the mayors and the commissioners uh, each week as we, as we make sure that we're all moving forward or taking similar and supportive precautionary steps. Now, Redstone Arsenal is the largest employer in Alabama. Is that correct? Uh, we think so. Typically, <laughs> yes. Uh, we're, we've been told so. There are right now nearly 40,000 employees working at Redstone Arsenal. Back in December of 2019, Lieutenant General Edward Daly said that by 2025, the year 2025, there will be more than 50,000 employees working at the installation. So I assume that means more families constantly moving here to Madison County and Huntsville and Madison. So, Colonel, as they set up house at the Arsenal uh, maybe outside of the arsenal too. How are you planning to keep them informed and ensure their safety as long as the pandemic continues? I think we've got a winning combination. I think the Department of the Army and our other federal tenants, as they as they uh, bring additional work or additional organizations to our area, we we do a very good job at the arsenal as well as our tenant organizations of doing our homework, and we pre-communicate to those organizations that are moving to us. Um, we put them in touch with the Chamber of Commerce. We put them in touch with the the cities and the counties. We put them in touch with the healthcare providers so that we can keep our community tight. You know, we have school liaisons uh, here at the Arsenal that reach out um, to the local schools, and I I visit the local schools so that we can communicate the the additional demand as it's coming in, so that we have the infrastructure available to to bring everybody uh, here to Huntsville or to the Tennessee Valley. And I think we'll continue to do that in the same manner. And then we'll rely upon everybody that's moving here. We have to realize that Huntsville and the Tennessee Valley, northern Alabama, we're not the only ones dealing with COVID-19. And so as you move here, you're going to bring your experiences from other locations and the precautions that you learned there. You're going to bring them here. And I, I think we'll continue to indoctrinate those practices as, as we move them forward. 
So the Redstone Rocket, the Redstone Arsenal's local newspaper, reported yep. that General Gus Perna, commander of the U.S. Army Material Command, talked with leaders at the United States Army Installation Management Command recently, mm-hmm. and they agreed that sharing best practices during the pandemic among installations was of high value. So would you tend to agree with that, Colonel? Oh, absolutely. I will tell you, um, here's a shout out to Daegu. Here's a shout out to Fort Belvoir, to Fort Meade. We have been the beneficiaries of uh, what my fellow garrison commanders have done. They're USAG Italy and Daegu both put out, because this, this hit them much earlier than it did us, but they put out a best practices playbook that helped us to understand how to institute precautions uh, that they had already put in place and, frankly, which ones worked and which ones didn't. Um, and then my peers here in the States, we worked, we've worked together uh, fairly routinely, probably I'd say every two weeks we, we do a conference call myself with 19 others, and then we join up with the other 79 at least once a month um, to share those best practices. And I can tell you that many of the things um, that you see here on the arsenal were not invented by Kelsey Smith. They were probably, some of them were definitely invented by my innovative staff. Much of what we've done here at the arsenal to help protect uh, our workforce and keep our missions occurring, uh, we learned from, from our partners throughout IMCOM. Italy's garrison, what I read on in that article from the Redstone Rocket was that their method was described as go slow to go fast. So, Colonel Smith, in a few words, can you sum up what Redstone's approach has been uh, to reopening garrison services? And could you describe what it means? Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Going slow, you go slow to go fast. Um, what that really means is let's not get ahead of ourselves. Just imagine a fire, and that fire is the virus. And the more wood you add, the bigger the fire gets and the faster it spreads. And so for us, we we know the virus is out there, and we're going to have to deal with it. So let's add fuel to that fire uh, as slowly as we can and still keep our missions going. And let's not go to a point where it gets out of control and it consumes our ability to provide treatment and care for those who have been infected. So going slow to go fast is really setting in place some benchmarks that uh, allow us to monitor a reduction in the virus and then likewise increase the number of people we bring back to work, continue to monitor it, make sure that the virus is continuing to get weaker, and then add more people. And as the virus weakens and the transmission weakens, then we add more people back to the workforce until we achieve a steady state uh, normal operations in the future. You can check out the Team Redstone Facebook page and watch weekly virtual town hall meetings every Thursday morning, briefing viewers on what's happening on the Arsenal. Thanks again to Garrison Commander Colonel Kelsey Smith with Redstone Arsenal, Alex Kim Yon with the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library, Purple 19 founder Judy Allison, and Dory Nutt for talking with folks at the Green Street Market. We appreciate all of them being part of this episode of the Public Radio Hour. You can find the four episodes we've produced in our new normal series at WLRH.org and on the award-winning WLRH mobile app. Also, a big thanks to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting for sharing us worldwide on their social media. And if you want more information about the ongoing coronavirus pandemic in Alabama, check out our data-packed info pages for info about COVID-19, resources for students and families, and our How to Help in the Tennessee Valley page. Tune into the Public Radio Hour, Thursday nights at 7, right here on 89.3 HD1. Thanks for listening, and take care.